Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Jerry Strayan, author most recently of Lucky Dogs from Bourbon Street to Beijing and Beyond. Welcome to Writers Forum, Jerry. Thank you. You're uh, really you're, we're, we're talking about Lucky Dogs, but before we do, let's talk about some of your other adventures here. You you started off. Uh, with an interest, you're an historian. I studied under uh, Stephen Ambrose at the University of New Orleans. I took five courses under Steve, then later went to LSU and studied under T. Harry Williams, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer of Huey Long. What mentors? <laughs> uh, well, uh, T. Harry Williams had been Ambrose's mentor, and Steve wanted uh -huh. me to go up and take courses under T. Harry, which I did, and then I went back and finished my master's degree under Steve, Stephen Ambrose, because he was a modern military historian. And my thesis was on Andrew Jackson Higgins, who designed and developed the PT boats and landing craft for World War II. Now, nowadays, we know a lot more about him than we did when you must have, when we must have when you wrote this. Uh, that's very true. Um, I was in Steve's modern military history class, and we had to write a term paper. And he asked everyone to pick a topic, and I kind of procrastinated. And I was, frankly, cutting donuts part-time at Dunkin' Donuts during college. And the owner's wife said, why don't you do it on Andrew Higgins? I had no idea who Mr. Higgins was. But the next day in class, uh, Steve was going down desk to desk to desk. And he asked me, he said, okay, Strahan, what are you going to write on? And I said, Andrew Higgins. He said, fantastic. I did not realize that no one had ever written on Andrew Higgins. Hmm. When I went to the library, there were no books. So I had to go to old newspaper articles and old magazine articles. Well, now, for the benefit of those people who are listening on the web and are not fortunate enough to live here in New Orleans, where we know a lot about Higgins now, who was he? Andrew Higgins um, started off in the boat industry in New Orleans, and he was designing boats for the Corps of Engineers and for the trappers and for the oil industry, very shallow draft boats. And these boats later morphed into what was the World War II landing craft. I mean, they needed the exact same uh, qualities that a landing craft would need. They had to be able to operate in shallow water, be able to pull up on a river bank and retract without damaging the propellers, which is the same requirements that they would need on the Normandy beaches and all the beaches throughout uh, the Pacific. Okay. Now, he was from Nebraska. He was born in Nebraska. Which is sometimes a bit of a handicap. We're not as welcoming to newcomers, maybe, as some other towns. Well, yes. Higgins went from Nebraska to Mobile and came to New Orleans. And, and I think probably during the war, he was New Orleans' most prominent uh, citizen, which probably some of the old-time locals did not relish that fact. Uh, but he had such an impact on World War II, and, and he hired 20,000 people here in New Orleans which also created somewhat of a problem. He needed that many people for a city park plant, which was located right next door to where Del Delgado is, and for his industrial canal plant. And he also built the Michoud facility, which um, NASA now uses. But he needed 20,000 workers, and in order to get those workers, he paid some of the highest wages, and he had to pull people out of other industries, from barbers to waiters to the sugarcane fields. And I'm sure some of those other managers didn't appreciate that Higgins was taking all of their workers. Now, um, I just learned, I, of course, read your book, and I wasn't real up on the different acronyms. What's a PT boat? 
A PT boat is patrol torpedo. Um, we're restoring one right now for the National World War II Museum. It's PT-305. It's 78 feet. And they were used, uh, the one we have was used in the Mediterranean. Uh, it would patrol the coast. It would also attack destroyers. It was used as a as a small aggressive vehicle. And and then you had the larger, is that the LCVP? Well, the LCVP is a landing craft. It's landing craft vehicle personnel. It's 36 feet. Um, it carried troops. It had the ramp on the front. You see movies where John Wayne comes flying out of this boat. The ramp comes down and then they hit the beach. That's an LCVP. Uh, he also built a 170-foot FS ship, which is freight supply. And that, the Army used that to carry supplies. It was more of an island hopper. Well, I didn't realize till I read your book that there wasn't just one plant. As you mentioned, there were se- what, one time seven different plants. Right. He had the um, Industrial Canal, which was the largest, and, and Mishu. Um, Mishu built uh, wing panels. He started out to build 200 Liberty ships there, but the contract was canceled. Then he got a contract for 1,200 um cargo airplanes, that contract was canceled. And then it, he used it to build airborne droppable lifeboats, uh, which fit under the belly of a B-17. Then he also used it as a repair facility for vehicles coming back from World War II. Then he had an, a small engine plant. He had a, a small facility on St. Charles Avenue. He had also had one in Homa that would um, build the LCPLs. Uh, most of the parts were cut on the city park plant on City Park Avenue, and then shipped to home, and they would be assembled there. Well, I noticed recently, a few months ago, Mike Scott at the Times Picayune was writing little feature stories, and he wrote that maybe they're doing some research now. Maybe some components for the Manhattan Project were being made at one of his plants. We didn't know about it, of course. <laughs> yes, um, it was. They were part of the Carbon Division, and. Kaylee Martin at the uh, World War II Museum is now researching that. I had run across it back in the 70s and spoke to Andrew Jr. about it. Um, Jr. thought that they had also built some part of the detonator, but I have no proof of that. Uh, Kaylee's trying to uncover all that material now. Well, it's just fascinating. And as you said, um, if you, even if you can't get into the World War II Museum, um, if you go, I think it's every day at 1, they give you a tour of, of the PT boat that's being reconstructed. But you can look on the outside. If you, if you go and the World War II Museum isn't even open, there's, you're building it in a big building so we can all watch it. It's, it's really fascinating. And it comes out of that building next month, oh. and it, it will go into Lake Pontchartrain. Oh, next um, month and, as we're taping this, because this might air later. So when, what, no, in November uh, it'll come Yeah, it'll, it will come out in November, um, and it will be taken eventually to Lake Pontchartrain, where the boat will give rides. And it's a restored Higgins official. It will be the only PT boat from World War II that saw action that will be in the water running under World War II engines. That's fascinating. And and you quote uh, Eisenhower is saying, actually, he's the man who won the war for us with all those, yes. what, 92% of the boats or something that the Navy was using at one time were Higgins boats. It was. It, it, that, <laughs> it's a great percentage, but you're comparing a landing craft to oh. a battleship, and I understand that. But, but yes, 92% of all the craft at one time the Navy had was designed or built by Higgins. Well, so your academic work, even though you changed your life and decided not to become an esteemed professor like 
uh, Stephen Ambrose or Harry D. Williams, um, you're still, and I say this, keeping an oar. <laughs> That's just too horrible. All right. Now let's talk about where you've spent most of your time when you're not writing about um, Higgins Boats. You're Managing Ignatius, and th this is your second book. Your first one was called Managing Ignatius, The Lunacy and Lucky of Lucky Dogs and Life in the Quarter, and then your new one um, that we're going to talk about. But first of all, some people might not know, where'd you get that title, Managing Ignatius? Who was Ignatius? Ignatius J. Riley was from the book A Confederacy of Dunces, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. Um, and when I decided to write this, I had been jotting down notes. And after I'd written the book on Higgins, Dr. Ambrose called me one day and said, Jerry, what are you writing? I said, nothing really. I said, I've jotted down a few notes on, on Lucky Dogs. He said, well, send them to me. He was in Montana at the time, and I sent him the notes. And he said, no, you really have to turn this into a book. So while A Confederacy of Dunces was a novel and fictional, I decided to do the factual version of telling the real stories of the real vendors in the quarter. And Ignatius was the, the fictional character, so I just titled the book Managing Ignatius. Well, we again, if you don't live in New Orleans, you might not be as familiar with um, A Confederacy of Dunces as those of us who live here. It's just a very beloved book. We teach it in the schools, and it's a real fascinating story because the author actually killed himself before it was published, and we've had several books. In fact, I've interviewed a couple of authors on this program who tell the story of how his mother went around peddling the book after her son died, and uh, Walker Percy reluctantly read it, and people at Loyola, where I've worked for quite a while, um, were involved. And the bottom line is it then won the Pulitzer Prize, but I mean, the poor man had already killed himself. But Ignatius Riley is just part of our life. There's a statue of him uh, downtown where in the book he's meeting his mother. Now it's called Paradise Vendors in the book, but you know that it was really Lucky Dogs. Right. And, and the statue is where the old D.H. Holmes department store was on Canal Street. Um, and, and Lucky Dogs, in reality, is Paradise Vendors. Um, we've been around since 1947. Now, in 1947, you tell a little bit about the guys that started it, but your connection really started um, when it uh, got bought by Doug Talbot. In 1970. And even before that, I mean, you were a kid. How did you get involved? Tell us, you were, you were working originally at Orange Julius in the mall. Right, I was working at Lakeside um, at the first Orange Julius they had there right when they turned into a mall, and Doug Talbot and two partners owned the, the business, and then Doug later in 1970 purchased Lucky Dogs, and I kind of went from Orange Julius to the Lucky Dog Company as I was going into college, and I would work for him part-time uh, doing catering events or helping them out during holidays. The um, vendors, you, will just, you describe them in both books, but we've all seen... Anybody who's visited New Orleans knows what we're talking about. We've seen these carts. We've seen these vendors. I mean, you're really famous. Um, but you as the manager see things a little differently, especially in the early days. Yes. Uh, back when I started in the 70s, it, the company was a lot different. The vendors were a lot different because you had the, the guys coming back from Vietnam. Some couldn't fit back into normal society. Some just didn't want to fit back in normal society. 
and working for us. Normal they, being relative when you're talking about New Orleans. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, let's say into a corporate society. Yeah. Could not fit into a corporate society. So they could work for us and they could come and go. They could work one day. They could work seven days. They could pick their hours. So it gave them the flexibility. Um, it was a wild group of guys. It was a fun group of guys. And the quarterback then, I think, was a lot more fun than it is now. You had the hippie movement. You had Ruthie the Duck Lady. You had Tinkerbell. For people, again, not from New Orleans, describe Ruthie to us. Ruthie was a local character, and she would roller skate down Bourbon Street in a wedding dress and would carry her duck with her, a live duck, white duck. And she would go into a bar, and she would put the duck on the counter, and she might have a beer, and she might get a beer for the duck. And she was just a, a normal in the quarter version. She was a normal person in the quarter. Anywhere else, she would be extremely... Um, seen in a different light. But in the quarter, she fit in well. She fit in well. When she got sick, I remember we had a fun, we went to fundraisers to get her some medical treatment. And then when she passed to get her buried, <laughs> I mean, she's quite a beloved character. I have a picture with her. So that's why I'm saying it's relative when you describe these characters in the French Quarter, because the French Quarter, especially the first beginning 70s and 80s was quite different from it what it is today it is it was in my mind uh, it was a lot less commercial you had a lot less a lot fewer of the national chains it was more local than it is now Uh, you had more of the artists you had more of the poets you had more of the writers you had more of the street characters living in the quarter but now property values have gone up those people have now been moved out of the quarter and around on the fringes somewhere. Well, and I think the quarter lost some of its color when that happened. Well, some people look on progress one way, and some look on it as another. It, um, some of the people that you hired really didn't have a place to live. Well, true. Um, they'll, they'll, traditional place to live. Well, traditional, correct. A lot of times they will come into town and they will come in. Um, and one of the first things they'll do is walk up and down the street looking for employment, and they will find us. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of rooming houses uh, and almost bunk houses that these guys would stay at. Uh, Julia Street had several. Um, the quarter itself had several. And you could go rent a bed uh, by the day or by the night or by the week. Um, those places have all seemed to have gone by the wayside now, and I think that's why you have a lot more people on the bridges today than, than you used to have. And how did you screen these people? You don't go into that too much detail, but, I mean, how did you know when somebody walked in off the street that he was suitable to be trusted with the cart and the money? Well, back then, um, and I guess I could say it now, but back then I used to take the name when they fill out the application. I'd take their name, their date of birth, and their Social Security number, and I would fax it over, and the FBI ran it. And this, this, and they would never tell me any of the information about that person but tell because they couldn't. But they could say, um, I would stay away from this individual or this, you know, you could hire this one. Now, what that did at that point in time back then, they also knew who was going through the quarter. They had an idea uh, what type of underground. The underground back then was much more than it is now. I mean, if a vendor left our company and I needed to find them, I might tell another vendor who was leaving tell Fred that I need to speak with him. And a week or two later, I might get a call from Fred because the vendors all stayed at either Salvation Armies or or rooming houses. They drifted in that same economic level. 
whereas most people might stay at an upper-class hotel or middle-class hotel. These guys stayed at the rooming house, so I could put the word out on the street, and it would be spread from coast to coast in no time at all, and the person would generally contact me back. Well, you just have wonderful stories in both books. Uh, to me, the highlight is the, the personalities of the vendors, which you, you're, you're an historian, and you've had the benefit of a lot of education that some of these people did not have the same opportunity to have. And so you see them, um, some of them are really more eccentric than the fictional Ignatius Raleigh. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, yes, and, and, and there are a wide variety of education. We've had some with very limited education. I've had some with incredible amounts of education. Um, one gentleman, uh, Bill McCarty, back in the 70s, knew exactly how much it took for him to pay rent and how much it took for him to buy groceries and for the rest of his needs. And he would go out on the street. And when he sold that many hot dogs, at that point in time, he would shut his cart down and he would sit there and he would read the Wall Street Journal. If I ever couldn't find Bill, I could always go over to the New Orleans Public Library and I would locate him there. I mean, he would do just enough work to get by on. And the rest of the time, if a customer came up, he would send him across the street or down the street to another vendor. You had um, a couple that got married. They were vendors. Yes, I had a couple that got married on Toulouse and Bourbon. They had the, the the wedding there. They wanted me to give away the bride. I, I kind of chose not to do that. The beat policeman did. Um, uh, gave away the bride. It gave away the bride. Yes, uh, right there on the street. Then they had like a a cash ceremony at the Lucky Dog Cart reception thereafter. <laughs> well. It's a cash business. You've never taken charges, have you? No, no. It, it's totally cash. And in my mind, it's one of the most dangerous businesses in New Orleans for the vendor because they're on Three in the morning. Street. Is there a, a, a deadline where they have to be off the street? Well, no, they, they set their own hours. Um, they, they come in uh, as long as they, they're there before the day shift leaves at 5, and then the night shift's over at, at 6 or so in the morning, and they can they can come and go as they want. Um but they're handling cash on the street, and everyone on the street knows they're handling cash. So I think we're left alone mainly because the vendors would be able to identify the perpetrator. So in that sense, we're generally left alone, and I think um, we've been lucky in that aspect. And you've had a, a few problems with vendors uh, forgetting to give you their money when they went on their trips north or wherever. Yes. Uh, you know, once in a while... The amazing thing is you might have a vendor who handles $300 in cash on a Friday night. And then for whatever reason, on Saturday night, something clicks in the brain. And suddenly, they leave the cart on the street, and they walk off with $50. Um, even then, the amazing thing, I have had people who have taken money, and then six months, eight months, in one case, three years later, an envelope comes, and they've paid the money back. Now, they know full well we would never find them. But I think they appreciate the fact that if you treat them fairly and you work with them, and what I tell them is don't burn this bridge because you can always come back. And, and you may be in need of finding work again if you can't find it in some other profession that you want. And a lot of these guys that have done that um, have written letters and sent the cash back, which uh, amazes me. Or they've come back and oh, said, Oh, come back and worked it off. Yeah, here, I owe you 300 bucks. Sure. But it really is a, a fascinating way of life. The second book, um, you talk more about, uh, well, you start, the first one came out in 98. 
Right. So you update it. But you also give an overview throughout the years, even before um, 98. Lucky Dogs has made attempts to um, go to other countries. <laughs> You've tried to go to Canada, Martinique, mm -hmm. Mexico, Honduras, Russia. And that was all before the China adventures. What happened with those other countries? Are, are lucky dogs in any of those countries? No. Um, we went to Canada. A, a developer, a shopping center developer, invited us to come to Canada. And he, he really wanted to be the franchisee for all of Canada. And we brought one of the carts to Toronto and, and set it up. And we operated in one of his malls. And what occurred in that situation was the retailers in the mall didn't realize that the mall owner was competing against the food court. And they decided that if he could compete against the food court, he might want to compete against the dress shops, the shoe shops, and every other retail outlet in there. So, in essence, they kind of gave him the ultimatum of, look, if you're going to compete against us, we want out of your malls. So, very rapidly, he decided not to be the franchisee for Canada. And Honduras, it was a situation that I looked at and said, there's no way to operate on the street with cash in a safe manner. We chose not to. And Martinique... God, I have no idea what happened to the car down there. We took it down there. We operated successfully. Um, we even took it to the soccer game where the island of Martinique played Cuba for the soccer championship of the Caribbean, which is their Super Bowl. And we had a cart sitting inside the stadium right by the fence, and we were selling hot dogs. Um, and, and I stopped to take some pictures of the cart, and then the crowd started getting riotous. And, and I, I didn't understand. And I asked the gentleman I was with, why are they screaming? And who are they screaming at? And he said, you. I said, me? Why me? And I was simply taking innocent pictures. But what I didn't realize, there were Cuban generals and dignitaries on the field behind the car. Oh. And the people in the stands assumed that I was a U.S. spy. <laughs> um, and once he explained This is radio. That, you can't see it. But uh, yeah. trust me, folks, he does not look like James Bond. <laughs> Once he, once they realized that um, I was not a spy, then everyone quieted down, and, and I put the camera inside the cart and watched the game like everyone else. Well, we don't have a lot of time left. What happened in China? China was an interesting, very interesting operation. But we we went there. We were trying to sell hot dogs, which is an impulse item, I think, to a non-impulsive person. Um, there were a lot of restrictions, but no patent protection. You could become very successful, and overnight you could have an incredible number of competitors that were sponsored by the Chinese government. So we looked at it, realized how much money we would have to put in. We would have to go from carts to a brick-and-mortar walk-in-type building to be successful. So we just decided that um, it, was a, it was a great attempt. Uh, it, was, it was interesting to try, but we pulled back into the States. Yeah, you described you needed 28 permit stamps on everything. Yes. And, and and an interesting cultural thing when you said about why would you have to go to brick and mortar? Well, when the, when you want to sell something to the Chinese person, especially if it's a Western item and if it's food, they want to be able to buy that item and sit inside right at the window so that everyone outside can see that they're affluent enough to purchase that Western product. We were giving them, in essence, what was a grab-and-go product. We would sell it to them and they could walk off. There was no... Um, satisfaction from the standpoint of being able for others to see them purchase that product. You've seen many, many changes since you started off, what, 40? 40, I've been managing Lucky Dogs for 40 years. Um, what are some of the changes? 
you have cell phones now. Oh, uh, you're talking about changes in the company? Yeah, changes in the company. You know, frankly, there's there's a few changes, but not many. We still cook hot dogs on mobile carts, just as they did in the 40s. We now use propane versus the old uh, kerosene. Uh, the carts now have four sinks and hot and cold running water. The old carts did not. So they're uh, much bigger. They're much bigger. The old the original carts weighed about 150 pounds. The new ones weigh about 650 pounds and now cost about $35,000 a cart to build. Um, but the, and I think the vendors in the original early days, we had the old carnies, which were much better salesmen than the vendor today. Vendors today now carry laptops. They carry cell phones. They're sitting on the stool playing a game or, or looking at something on the Internet versus paying attention to the potential customer. Um, and the quarter itself has totally changed from then to now. But you're you're not in other countries, but you are in some a couple of other locations besides the French Quarter now. Well, yes, we're in Harris Casino. Uh, we started off with Harris in the temporary casino when it was a municipal auditorium, and we are the only original person still there. And we're in the New Orleans Airport. Uh, we have three locations there. So when you fly in, you can buy a hot dog. If you go gamble, you can buy a hot dog. And if you go to the streets, you can buy a lucky dog. And are you somehow grandfathered that nobody else can do that? That goes to a 1976 U.S. Supreme Court decision, the city of New Orleans versus Nancy Dukes. And, and um, we benefited from it, but it was the city and Louisiana concessions that actually fought it out in court. Saying that no well, other street vendors. I mean, you see like an ice cream. There, it, there was ourselves. There was Oliver Roberts ice cream. And there were a few fruit vendors. And the reason they did this was because back in the 70s, um, tourists were getting just bombarded on street corner, street corner, street corner, people trying to sell things. So they created the grandfather clause, which said if you had not been operating eight years or longer, you could no longer operate. And that still holds. That still holds. Matter of fact, the Supreme Court ruled that Lucky Dogs had become as much a part of the Vucare as wrought iron in Jackson Square. <laughs> what happened? You were going to do retail for a while in Rouse's? Did that? We're still in Rouse's with, with the retail hot dogs, and hopefully we'll expand to other grocery chains. It's just, it's something we're starting. What about the Superdome? Did that? Uh, we are selling hot dogs at the Saints games in the Superdome off a of kiosk. So there's a few places around. Yes. If we're not in the French Quarter, but mainly when you think of Lucky Dogs, you sure think of the French Quarter. And we still get calls from around the world, or letters from around the world, but we just haven't pursued them. Uh, Mr. Talbot passed yes. a year or two ago. You're working with his sons now? Yes, Mark and Kirk. Um, What's going to happen? Are you ever going to retire? <laughs> you know, I'll be 66 in February. Um, probably by the time I'm 70, maybe. And we'll, we'll see. And you have plans to travel, I'm oh, sure, with like your it. wife. And... Yeah, both my sons are commercial airline pilots, so I have great privileges. And it's just nice to get on a plane and go. Well, I love Lucky Dogs, and it's it's been a delight to talk to you. I also very uh, admire you very much for your serious work. That you do, um, the lucky dogs make you smile, yeah. but I really admire your academic work as an historian and what you've done with um, the Higgins story and the Higgins boats. And as we said, you can go down to the French Quarter, you can get a lucky dog, and then you can walk over to the museum district and go watch the PT boat um, being built. Um a review of this book, as we're taping this, um, last week we aired a, a, an interview with Susan Tucker, who wrote, just wrote her latest book as a history of genealogy in New Orleans. 
She's talking about your new book. This book is a funny read, but also a great testament to a belief in people in the practicality required to run a business built around a transient labor force and the quirkiness of one place, New Orleans. Although the author treats us also to a foray into the global economy, New Orleans values and history are pervasive and richly interpreted. You've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, Jerry Strahan, author most recently of Lucky Dogs, From Bourbon Street to Beijing and Beyond. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.